This is the GP Soccer Podcast with your host, Giovanni Piccini. Yeah, this is Coach Celia from Somerville, Massachusetts. Uh, you're listening to the GP Soccer Podcast with this guy, uh, Giovanni Piccini. This guy knows everything about soccer. He's amazing. Well, there, Coach Sully. Well, thank you for those kind words. Uh, right out of the gate uh, here on the GP Soccer Podcast, Coach Sully there from Somerville, Massachusetts. Uh, well, all kidding aside, uh, welcome to all of you, my wonderful listening audience from uh, literally around the world, all around the planet. North, South, East, West, everyone in the middle, as I always like to say. Welcome to another wonderful episode of the GP Soccer Podcast. Uh, as you very well know, in the opening uh, portion of the show, I like to kind of check some boxes sometimes, or check a box, spend a few minutes upon a, on a particular story or an item, um, and then we offer up some you know, some commentary as well. Um, of the last, uh, I don't know, several episodes here and there, I have been talking about and sharing with you stories about behavior. Um, you know, uh, behavior, you know, from fans, from parents, from coaches to players to officials and um, the behavior that unfortunately has, has reached arguably an all time low in terms of, uh, you know, our discourse with one another, uh, our, our ability to communicate, uh, you know, nicely to one another and, and do so in a civil fashion. Uh, it's really gone down the proverbial tubes, if you will. And I know I noted to, to all of you, I think last last week's show. Uh, that I think it's just my own opinion, uh, a trickle-down effect from our national discourse, which we all know by now, um, his just his civility is gone, and uh, the the type of discourse we see at the, at the at the highest of levels is is really disgraceful, really disgraceful. Uh, and again, I never want to get into politics. I'm not going to start now, but um, I, I just think that type of discourse, that type of behavior, just found its way down. It, the trickle-down effect, if you will, uh, and in this case, it's trickled down to youth sports. And again, beat the dead horse. You heard me say this before as well. I'd like to think that this platform, the GP Soccer Podcast, is a, you know, in my bringing these issues up, will, will might encourage people to think about changing of behavior, change the behavior of fans, of parents, of coaches, of players, of officials, um, to the point where we go back to a time. And maybe I'm naive. Maybe I'm a little, I'm a little pie in the sky. But go back to a time where, you know, youth sports, high school sports, sports in general was this. You know, this wonderful oasis of, of joy and fun and community, uh, a place where folks got together uh, to watch their kids play and watch the neighborhood kids play, maybe not even their own kids sometimes. Um, and it was something healthy, it was something fun. Um, that has been that's been tarnished and uh, it's been really tarnished, um, sadly. So, you know, hopefully again, you know, through um, my conversation with all of you, my listening audience, that um, maybe we can make some changes. Now, to that end, to that end, I want to bring up something I I, I've, uh, I get on a regular basis from Tovo, T-O-V-O, uh, which is short for Total Football, uh, and that's Dutch. My Dutch is very bad there. And Total Football, as a side note, is a method by which we teach the game, um, you know, in a little different manner than we might be accustomed to. And the great Todd Bean, who uh, functions primarily out of, out of Barcelona in Spain, has done a wonderful job 
um, in you know, promoting this particular method of player development. But every Tuesday, since I, I've taken the courses and now I'm privy to the, to the stuff that uh, Todd sends every Tuesday, um, I wanna share with you the one that I got this week. Timing is perfect. And it's entitled Trash Talking. Trash Talking. So this is from Tovo, Todd Beam. A weekend of mass matches. A barrage of sideline communication. To be fair, most of it is completely useless and if it is, and it is, and it is painfully debilitating. So let's consider trashing the following. Constant babble is useless. Even if it's couched as quote unquote support for a child. Comments about a past event, past events are useless. Not going to change moments gone. Play-by-play -play joysticking is a definite no-go. It is annoying as it is ineffective. To the bin, go babble, regrets, and joysticking, agreed? This begs the question about what will fill the void. What will our kids do with more silence? Well, for one, they can breathe now. They are free to play, lighter. They can think and connect in ways that space affords. Courage, resilience, and leadership can now emerge. Our young athletes may actually receive a, receive a tactical instruction from a coach rather than conflicting messages. A more silent coach, by the way, is not a poor coach. He may be prudent. She may be mature. He may be just observing your child. Give it a go. She may be watching unfold, uh, unfold that which was practice. Taking notes may be more noteworthy than noise. This is on us. I am a parent. I have failed more than once in this regard, but I can say that I am ex exponentially better than I was years ago. I observe more. I relax more. I actually enjoy the game so much more. I am abundantly flawed still, but less foolish. I need not shout to support. My children know I love them. I show up for them, and that is enough. I drive them home, nourish them, and kiss them goodnight. A subtle well done is far more effective than a sensational scream. In fact, I have learned through the years that my presence resonates far more than my voice. Perhaps it's time to trash the talking and let my child speak for him or herself. See you on the sidelines next weekend. Again, that comes from Tovo. T-O-V-O. T-O-V-O. Definitely check it out. Todd Bean. Uh, and again, uh, I get those every Tuesday. They're, they're different, uh, different topics. But uh, having just received that um, recently in the timing of this particular broadcast, um, I think was perfect, perfect, perfect. Let me check another box. Let me check another box. So the other day, I get a phone call from a good friend of mine, a colleague who, who uh, coaches a club team. Uh, I, think, I think he's got a, a group of U17 boys. And um, they were prepared to, you know, heading for a match. And uh, everyone arrives and the, both teams are going through their pregame warm-up. And as my friend and colleague shared with me, as the as the both teams were literally making their way out to uh, get ready for the opening kickoff, the opening whistle, the referee calls both head coaches over. And uh, so the both coaches come over. And uh, what was described to me by my friend in, in a stern fashion, and I'm paraphrasing as he was, he says, I'm, I'm here to give you a verbal warning before this game even starts. And both my friend uh, and the opposing coach were a little taken aback. Uh, again, paraphrasing the uh, official, as was shared uh, to the two coaches, had indicated that he was in charge of the match. He was not going to take anything, any guff, any issues 
from the coach, from the players, from the parents. And if he had to engage with any of the aforementioned people, he was just going to show an immediate red card. And if he had to, he would uh, he would just basically cancel the game. I don't know if he had that kind of power. And um, when the Q coaches, as shared with me by my friend, tried to get an, tried to get him to elaborate a little bit, he would have nothing. He would have nothing to do with it. That's how it's going to be. You both now have a verbal warning, and that's how we're going to start the game. So, taken aback, they go back to the respective benches. He blows the whistle. And at some point in the match, there was a questionable offside of which the opposing coach wanted to question the validity of the call. The referee uh, went to this particular coach, the opposing coach from my friend, and said, do you want that red card now? And the coach got the message loud and clear and stepped back. And throughout the course of the game, both coaches were quasi-muzzled for fear that any kind of uh, communication they'd put out there or anything you know, they might say out there might be misconstrued, misconstrued by the referee. Now, to be fair, as my friend shared with me, the guy did an actually pretty good job. He did a pretty good job um, you know, in terms of managing the game. Um, my friend, unfortunately, lost the match 2-1 to one in the waning moments. Uh, both teams shook hands. The coaches shook hands. And, uh, you know, everybody went home. And my friend was asking me, well, you know, Giovanni, you know, what would you do in a situation like that? In terms of post-match, it's not what you can do during the match. The referee had already come in there uh, with his own, uh, you know, uh, preconceived notions. And I thought it was worthy of bringing up to, the to uh, you know, club, of, club officials, to league officials, referee associations, uh, and share with them the, the, the chronology as you shared it with me. Uh, because in referee training, the cornerstone of referee training is to go into a match with no preconceived notions, no prejudices. You go in with an open, clear mind so that you can you can clearly and objectively call a fair game. To come in, as this particular gentleman came in with preconceived notions and prejudices, and laying down the proverbial law, so to speak, by issuing verbal warnings before the match even started, already exhibits prejudice, already exhibits, um, you know, a, a, a weakness in his ability to manage players and situations as the game is being played. We all know at every level the the individual who's in the, in the middle, even the ARs for that matter, uh, they know how to handle people. They know how to handle situations. Communication sometimes is is the best form of diffusing a situation. We try to use cards, you know, as as a as a last ditch method or something that is within the the, the folk, within the realm of the rules. Clearly, calls for a yellow card or a red card. But if if it doesn't reach that point, good situational management, good you know interpersonal management skills with the players, with the coaches, with the fans. Uh, that's the mark of a good official. That's the mark of a good official. And also, obviously, in his, in his addition to his or her knowing knowing the rules, um, you know th- that that could not have been a worse situation. A worse situation. And what did we teach the kids? What do we teach the kids in this in situation? Well, we're going to come into a situation with preconceived uh, prejudices and preconceived notions, and um, you know we've already judged you negatively before the opening whistle has even bl- had been blown. So. <laughs> We talk about behavior. Um, you know, th- there's there's but one example. I'm sure there's many more out there. 
of referees who come in there, you know, chest all puffed out and, uh, you know, let everybody know that I am in charge here. And if you've got to come in and actually say that or exhibit behavior, you know, that, that says I'm in charge here, well, you've already told everybody you're not a good official and you're not, and you're not. And goodness knows over my many years, which is uh, over 40, don't tell anybody, over 40, uh, I have seen more than my fair share officials who come to the field with this puffed out chest, so to speak, uh, to let everybody know that I'm in charge and you're not, and you're not. So circling back to my friend and circling back to those of you uh, who might be in, in similar situations and dealing with, a, with an ineffective official such as that, you do the right thing. You follow protocols, you bring it up to club management, you bring it up to referees organization. If you're a high school coach, you know, your, your state organizations, and you, you lay things out in a good chronological fashion. You do so objectively. You do so professionally. Uh, if, you, if you can get the, uh, the, the, back, the, the backing of your, um, the, the, uh, your, your, the opposing coach to get on board, great. That's great. But handle it in a professional, civil manner and see if we can't uh, see if you uh, can't get some, uh, some change taking place to officials who think, uh, well, they're God. My goodness, there you have it, folks. The opening commentary here on this edition of the GP Soccer Podcast. Uh, in today's show, with conversation with the coach, we're going to have a, a great guest, Rob Herringer. Rob Herringer is the new Director of Coaching Education for United Soccer Coaches, a longtime friend and colleague. Uh, I'm so happy that he's been uh, recently appointed to the DOCE of United Soccer Coaches. We're going to have a little conversation with him uh, on conversation with the coach. And in Coach's Corner, Frank Martin. Frank Martin, I pulled this one from the net. You're you're just going to love his comments about behavior. Um, the the comments were pulled when he was the head men's basketball coach at the University of South Carolina, and I believe he's at he's at uh, UMass Amherst at this point. But uh, that's the lesson. That's the voice you'll hear in Coach's Corner. So Giovanni Piccini here, GP Soccer Podcast. We're going to break for a commercial on the other side. Conversation with the coach. Don't you dare go anywhere. In the soccer coach's toolkit. Those who teach the game will find a wealth of coaching activities to improve, stimulate, and provide enjoyment for players of all ages and abilities. UEFA B licensed coach and Chelsea FC Player Development Center head coach Rob Ellis has drawn on more than 20 years of soccer coaching and physical education teaching experience to provide only those activities he has successfully used time and time again to engage and inspire his players. Each activity is graded from beginner to advanced and they foster fresh and exciting ideas to coach the main techniques and tactics of soccer. The 252 coaching activities included in the Soccer Coaches Toolkit are also accompanied by an easy-to-understand description and diagram. The activities require only basic coaching equipment and can be adapted to challenge players of varying ability levels and needs. Soccer coaches at all levels of the game can use the activities to create one-off sessions for their players or use the activities to deliver regular sessions as part of a competitive training program. It is an ideal resource for both grassroots and elite youth coaches and will enhance both the players' and teams' development. The book is on sale worldwide and has scored a massive hit with professional coaches and players alike. Former Tottenham Hotspur youth coach John Rowan described the Soccer Coaches Toolkit as an astounding book. I consider it the Bible of soccer coaching. Head of football methodology at Monaco said of the Soccer Coaches Toolkit, it is a very useful book for coaches to widen their session database and provide variety in their coaching. Head of Soccer Development at Christ College Secondary School in London, Daniel Nielsen called the Soccer Coaches Toolkit a truly comprehensive library of drills and sessions 
for the whole spectrum of soccer techniques and tactics. In addition, the book has already been purchased and endorsed by former Wolverhampton Wanderers and Sunderland defender Jody Craddock, as well as ex-Leicester City striker Trevor Benjamin and Sutton United defender Joe Kizzy. The Soccer Coach's Toolkit is the ticket to a lifetime of soccer coaching ideas, a must-book to include in your soccer coaching library. And welcome to the GP Soccer Podcast, Conversation with the Coach. And welcome to Conversation with the Coach. I'm your host, Giovanni Piccini. You know that, you know that. Um, as I've noted to all of you, my great listening audience uh, in, in previous broadcasts, this particular segment of the new and improved, shall we call it, GP Soccer Podcast has been a great success. And a lot of that has to do with the terrific, terrific guests who I have for this segment, uh, Conversation with the Coach. And today is no different. Our guest today is a longtime friend, is a longtime colleague, uh, someone who's near and dear to my heart in, in terms of the game. And that is the uh, is, is Rob Herringer. And Rob is the brand new, and I do mean brand new, uh, Director of Coaching Education for United Soccer Coaches. Uh, Rob brings over 20 years of experience, uh, coaching experience at almost every level of the amateur game, um, and that will help him serve in his new role. He is United Soccer Coaches member since the year 2000. He holds the United Soccer Coaches Premier Diploma. In addition to the United Soccer Coaches Master Coach Diploma, University of Delaware Master Coach Certificate, U.S. Soccer A License, and Professional Development Certificates from Clubs and Federations in Scotland, England, and the United States of America. Rob Herringer, with all that said, my dear friend, welcome to the GP Soccer Podcast and Conversation with the Coach. Thank you so much for having me. It's so good to be here. Great to have you. Great to have you. Before I hit the record button, Rob and I were, were chatting a bit and we commented how long it's been since we've actually seen each other. Um, Rob and I kind of share a, a common experience with both master coaches um, mm -hmm. way back yeah. when we, we took that through United Soccer Coaches, then NSCAA. And uh, it's been a while, but yet yes. here we are. Here we are. And, but we're still both good looking. Both um, well, you you definitely are, sir. Uh Listen, Rob, I got a face for radio. <laughs> I have a face for radio. Oh, <laughs> uh, not true, not true. <laughs> well, listen, you know, here's where I'd like to begin. Um, a lot of my audience, uh, you know, they're youth soccer coaches. They, they're volunteers. They may not know, you know, about the soccer landscape outside of their own little world in their community or their club. I also have an international audience who look at the United States and how we function a lot differently than how they might look or know um, in their own country. So for those constituents of my audience, what is United Soccer Coaches? And I'll, I'll dovetail, wh where is its place or what is its place in the overall United States soccer landscape? Man, that's a that's a big question there to, to get going here. To, I don't mess around. Off. Yeah, that's good. Um, you know, what is United Soccer Coaches? United Soccer Coaches is a, is a coaches association that's um, been around since 1941. And it's an association that's dedicated to education and advocacy um, development of our, of our coaches and our members. Um, it's an association that was really pretty much founded on education. And 
that that amazing relationship that coach educators have with uh, student coaches and the impact that educators can have on the careers of our of our uh, young and up and coming coaches. So uh, as far as the association is concerned, we've we've been at this for a very long time. I feel like we do an, an excellent job of um, developing and educating coaches across the country, uh, some parts of the world, different parts of the world. Um, but I, where I think we, we stand out aside from our education is also what we do for our coaching communities, the different members of our communities um, and, and have the support that we provide them as they seek um, their potential in the game, whatever that potential may be. So uh, I really believe that the, the United, Soccer Co- United Soccer Coaches is a family and uh, the relationships that you make, such as the, the, the relationship that you and I formed. Um, that happened through this association and it's bringing like-minded people together. Uh, it has for a very long time where people can network and share ideas and just continue to grow and, um, you know, build the game of soccer throughout this country. Uh, it, it's just an amazing group of people and I'm proud to be a part of it. You know, folks are familiar, generally speaking with, you know, U.S. soccer, the, the, our federation, and they're familiar with the licensure, you know, the alphabetical A, B, C, D and that type of thing. Um, how, how are we different? You know, again, I guess that's kind of like, you know, where we stand in, in, in the U.S. soccer, United States landscape. Um, share with my audience the, the, the some of the, the courses that we offer, the programs we offer, our advocacy yeah. Um, you know, programs that um, that United Soccer Coaches um, has available to, to 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 folks who are involved. Yeah, I, you know, I, I've been through United Soccer Coaches coaching school and most recently I've took the grassroots instructor's license and I, I found that to be very beneficial. In fact, all of my experiences through UX, U.S. Soccer were uh, positive for me. And most recently with this instructor's license, uh, educator's license, uh, I learned a ton. I mean, I, I am very grateful for those experiences. But I think where we're a little bit different is uh, in some regards is we're, we're dedicated to to education and development and fostering those relationships, uh, as I mentioned before, um, that that really take on a life of, of their own uh, after our course is over. So what I love probably the most about all of this, and I've, I've already kind of mentioned it, is those is those connections that you make with people. And as an educator, uh, I love when people reach out to me two, three, four years down the road from a course saying, hey, you know, uh, I guess most recently for me, it was, hey, you did this presentation on set pieces. And I'd love to be able to share that with my team, my college team. Would you be willing to share it? And uh, the fact that it was uh, memorable to them, something that lasted uh, a very long time in their minds, and they found beneficial to their team, that that is what this association is all about for me. Uh, but where we may take a few different boxes too is, you know, we offer uh, education for coaches and the various uh, aspects of the game. So not just, you know, the club environment or, um, you know, the collegiate environment, which seem to be, you know, pretty popular um, environments for our coaches. What I love is is we continue to develop courses for coaches in different you know areas. So uh, high school coach diploma is one that's very high on my um, priority list right now. Uh, high school coaches that's some of the, that's one of the biggest groups of coaches we have in this country, and I don't think that in general we've really served them very well over the years. I'm proud to say that our association developed 
uh, a diploma course just for those courses, uh, just for those coaches. But, you know, that kind of went away along with other things um, right before and, you know, during the pandemic. So uh, we are really trying to bring um, that programming back uh, and, and serve that group of coaches. And then also, um, we, we, I feel like, spend a, uh, dedicate a lot of time to developing, you know, the parent coaches and the coaches that are working with um, recreational players and players. I mean, that's where the majority of our players are, uh, is in the recreational uh, level. And uh, a lot of our coaches out there, there are the moms and the dads who get you know, assigned to coach a team and they're given a bag of balls and said, off, say, off you go. Uh, there you go. Uh, good luck. Uh, and if we're really going to change the game in this country, we're going to make it better. We're going to improve it. Uh, we have to serve the coaches in our largest largest market, which is in the uh, recreational parent coach market. So uh, I, th I think that we really work hard at serving all of our members in every walk of life they come from. And uh, maybe that's where what makes us just a little bit different than some of the other organizations out there. So that you you set me up beautifully for a little segue here. <laughs> you talked about uh, you know the parents who were given a you know a bag of balls, some pennies, and cones, and say, yeah. "Hey, good luck, off you yep. go." What do you say to that person or those people? Uh, maybe their parents, maybe they're just volunteers that say, uh, "You know, coaching education. I know there's courses, but I, I'm just volunteering. I'm just trying to help." Or maybe they just they're saying, "Well, I I want to coach my kids. That's all I want to do." What do you say to those folks? you know, relative to the importance of, of taking a coaching education course um, and, and getting on that, you know, coach development bandwagon, if you will, what, what, what would you say to those folks? Well, I just came out of the club environment. I spent the last eight years uh, directing a club in the Omaha area. And that was a lot of, uh, you know, we tried to implement a lot of coaching education and, you know, and some requirements for our coaches, even just for parent coaches or recreational coaches. And we'd hear that a lot, right? Well, I'm just volunteering, you know, I really don't have time for this. And that may be the case. But whenever we say yes to uh, the responsibility of coaching young people, uh, that's a massive responsibility. And so my message to them and to everyone else is, look, if you have been, you have 12 young people uh, who you are now in charge of, uh, you should probably want to get the most knowledge that you can about how you can best serve those people and help them. And, and, and as we know, as coaches, you know, you get 12 kids on a, a recreational soccer team, you've got 12 individualized programs, uh, especially the younger that the, the younger they go. So I would say that for me, the message to those people is look, uh, yes, I know that you're volunteering and we appreciate that very much. We would not have a game in this country if we didn't have volunteer coaches. However, now that you've accepted this responsibility, now we need to prepare you for you know what you're about ready to um, embark on. And we want to make sure that the adults that we have working with our kids are, are as prepared as possible for everything that uh, may come up during that season or during that experience with that team. And uh, it's kind of for me, you know, I'm not going to get up in front of a classroom and teach history unless I uh, know a little bit about history. I'm, I'm just not going to do that. And uh, I would hope that most most coaches feel the same way. Like, yeah, get, arm me with with some weapons here to uh, to go out and make every minute count with my kids and have them uh, experience, have a, have a great experience with me and with the game and 
if they walk away wanting to play more, uh, then I did my job. And uh, I think that's where, where we really can can do a great service to the game in this country is by helping those coaches realize the power of education. You know, you touched upon a very, very important analogy there, that being, you know, if you're a history teacher, you, you, you go get <laughs> certified as a history teacher yeah you know i i speak at length and anytime i'm delivering a course or even you know just just chatting with youth folks in general and this is the teacher me come on i was a teacher for 24 years and i say you know that field is a classroom those players are students the coach is a teacher mm-hmm. the subject happens to be soccer and like any good academic environment you want a teacher certified qualified capable to teach the game um, appropriately using the most, you know, uh, latest methods and comes with the appropriate enthusiasm and joy that every good teacher brings. Uh, And then I I usually do this this little poll. I'm like, raise your hand if you want your child's teacher to be certified and qualified and, (laughs) you know, have all those things that I just laid out. And every person, you know, they raise their hand. I'm like, well, if you have those expectations academically, you need to have those same the same recommend, uh, the same uh, you know criteria for athletically as well, not just athletically, but you know the things that that will contribute to the growth and development of your child. What are your thoughts about you know the the connection, the analogies, or you know between the academic approach and athletic approach to teaching? I couldn't, the game? I couldn't agree more. Uh, to be honest with you, uh, and that's the comparison that I, I found myself making to our coaches in our club for a very long time. Um, look, parents these days, uh, they, they expect a certain experience when their child goes to school. Uh, it's different than when you and I went to school. Um, parents these days are, are 100% connected to that classroom experience, especially in the elementary school ages where, uh, they're getting communication from the teacher on a regular basis, a weekly basis, maybe sometimes a daily basis when there are issues with um, reaching certain uh, benchmarks or milestones, teachers are reaching out to parents, parents are reaching out to teachers. There's a lot of communication that goes on between um, the two. And to be honest with you, I believe, firmly believe that that's what parents want out of their child's athletic experience as well. They want to feel connected. They want to feel like that they're supporting their child in something that they enjoy doing. Um, and they, they expect to be a part of that process, uh, just like they do when their children go to school. And <clears throat> I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And having, you know, our, you know, our son has played the game. He's now a senior in high school. You know, that's what we expected from, from his coaches, because I didn't just coach him the entire time, thankfully. I'm sure he appreciates that. <laughs> uh, but, uh, um, you know, we, we just wanted to be part of the process. And I think that's sometimes where coaches make some mistakes uh, is they don't, they feel like maybe the parents are not, um, you know, they're not partners in this process. Maybe that sometimes um, they're a little worried that parents are working against them um, or they just assume that parents are going to work against them. And really it has to be that partnership between those three groups, you know, athlete, coach, and parent. Um, and, And that's, that's exactly uh, the experience that parents have right now when their children go to school. And I, I would tell you that there's really not much difference for me uh, between going to school and going to soccer. I, I totally agree with you when, you know, coaches are teachers. Um, they, in a lot of ways, um, 
you know, teachers have to adapt. I live with a teacher, you know, I used to be a teacher. Uh, teachers have to adapt and and do so many things on the fly and, and be able to meet the needs of so many different kids. I will tell you that I don't think it's any different when you're coaching soccer, uh, especially now um, in education, you see more individualized education plans. I think you're going to see more of that need coming across in uh, the athletic world as well, where, you know, you've got 12 different players. How are you going to coach them? Cause they're all a little bit different and it's similar, you know, how are you going to teach them when they're in a classroom? Cause they're all a little bit different too and learn differently. So I love the comparison and I couldn't agree more. And not only that, Rob, I'm sure you would agree when an individual, a parent, let's just use a parent as an example, and they, and they can take a coaching education course, they, they, they now are empowered with, with knowledge, with stuff yeah. that they can then go out and utilize, which makes the coaching experience all the more enjoyable. Yes. I kind of know what I'm doing. Yeah. And in that process, if they kind of know what they're doing, they can then see the results, so to speak. I'll put those in quotes a little bit of the players getting it. And that, you know, maybe I'm naive. I don't know. That in and of itself, I think, could, you know, could just heighten the enthusiasm for an individual wanting to take a coaching education course and then another and then another and then another. What are your, th what are your thoughts on that one? Yeah, I mean, all it takes is one. I think, I think you know, coaches like us, we, we took a course at some point during our career where it just got us hooked. I mean, I could tell you right now. For me, it was the National Diploma at Penn State University. Uh, and that that course is the reason why I'm here today. Um, but I think <clears throat> with, a, like, with, a, with a parent coach, for example, if we get them to take one course and that, as you say, that helps them create a better learning environment for their kids, it is more enjoyable for them because the environment is a little bit more controlled. It's not as chaotic. Uh, it's organized. Uh, and kids are leaving wanting to play more. Uh, that's what it's all about, I think. And uh, if you can get a parent coach or, or a coach just to take that one course and, and you give them a great experience and they feel like they've learned something, well, they're naturally going to think about taking the next thing. And that's what we have to do as educators is we have to create those learning environments for our student coaches where they feel like it's very valuable to them. Uh, it's worth their time and their their money, their hard-earned money. And you show them things that, and you show them places that they could get to that they couldn't get to on their own. And that to me is, is, is coach education. Uh, and it, again, if you, if you provide them with great, a great learning environment where they feel free to open their minds and express themselves and collaborate with others, then I, you you get them hooked on education and wanting to learn more and get and reach their potential as a coach and that to me is what it's all about. You know, I'm going to touch a third rail just a little bit, just a little bit. The third rail, uh, and this inevitably comes up when in any discussion relative to coaching licensure, certification, that type of thing, and that's mandating, mandating licensure, yeah. mandating certification for anyone who is involved in, in teaching the game. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, and I could be wrong, I'm going to let my hockey folks get back to me if I'm wrong on this one. I think US, uh, USA Hockey mandates licensure for anyone who, who puts on a pair of skates and gets on the ice and, and, and coaches. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I, I know it's a third third rail issue, I, you know, all kidding aside. <laughs> um, and what do you say to a youth soccer organization or a club that really philosophically 
would like everyone involved who's coaching to to take a course short of saying you have to or you don't what are your thoughts on that that aspect uh i will tell you that i'm in favor of minimum requirements to coach children um whatever those requirements may be but uh i do not believe as i mentioned earlier that and this is what happens a lot of times. And I understand the reasons why having lived that life and been in that environment. Um, I know why organizations find find whoever's available, whoever says yes, and just turns turns the kit bag over to them and says, off you go. I know why that, that happens. But again, we should be interested in creating the very best learning environments possible for our kids. Um, and in order to do that, the only way you can do that is through um, having them go through requirements to become a coach. And part of those requirements, in my opinion, should be some type of education, whether that's in-house education that clubs do on their own, which a lot of clubs do a great job of, uh, or whether it's uh, mandating that you know you go through United Soccer Coaches or another organization that's similar. I, I honestly don't think... Um, we should be putting adults out there with kids uh, unless they have some kind of training. Uh, and now we can argue all day and night about what those requirements are. Um, but that's where I think the United Soccer Coach Coaches comes into play because we offer so many different types of education. We have online, blended, in-person. They're all valuable. Um, and because we offer so many different um, programs on our menu, there really shouldn't be an excuse why someone can't get educated. Uh, and that's up to the organizations to determine what those requirements are. But I certainly stand on the side of uh, minimum requirements to coach. And part of those requirements should be some type of education, whether that's in-house or out of house. Um, but we certainly shouldn't be putting adults with kids without having prepared them uh, to the best of our ability. You know, you, you touched upon something very important there, the, the methods by which a person can take a course. Mm -hmm. You and I were, were going at it years ago. Everything was everything was live. You went mm -hmm. to a course at a venue for, whether it was for a weekend or a week or something like that. Now, with the advent of technology, two o'clock in, in the morning in your PJs, you, know, <laughs> you, you can log on to a course and, and, and ship mm -hmm. away at a course. Um, you know, so there are a variety of different methods by which you can educate yourself um you know to, to to be the best you can in terms of teaching the game so robert we're drawing to a close here um if people wanted to learn more about united soccer coaches they maybe want to reach out to you what's the best way to discover more and more or, or uh about united soccer coaches and all the things that they do well the easy way is to go to our website unitedsoccercoaches.org um and it should be said too. while I'm with you, I want to mention sure. the fact that we've got an amazing group of people here that work at the national office on our website and our graphics and our, our content. And I know we're working every day to try to uh, make that experience as positive as possible for folks and as easy to navigate as possible. And we have some things that we need to improve on, but I certainly think that our website is our best um, method for getting as much information as possible. Uh, and then on the website, you can you can certainly reach out to me or anyone in our education department, Dave Simeone, Jordan McDowell. Uh, we have we have a fantastic uh, education department and it's only improving. So uh, 
folks out there should feel like they could reach out to us if they have questions about anything that we're offering or just anything in general. I think uh, one thing that uh, I think our educators know about me is I'm pretty approachable person and my phone is always on or, you know, the email is always open for, for any kind of contact because I'm just about helping people. And I want those, those people out there listening to know that we're an association that cares about the development of our coaches for the good of the game and for the benefit of our young athletes, right? So we want to be as accessible as possible. We want to make sure that uh, people can uh, find what they need in order to serve the kids that they're coaching. And we should always have the people in place here at the national office where we can help you if you ever have any questions. And that goes for me. Um, you know, you can, I can be the first person you reach out to. I don't have a problem with that. If that helps make the game better for kids uh, playing the game in our country, then, then let's do it. I'm all about it. And knowing you as well as I do, I know you mean that with great sincerity. And I say this to my listening audience, take, uh, take Rob up on that. Um, he's, he's, uh, and he can certainly there to help you out. Um, and as uh, you know, someone who's been involved in the organization for as long as I have, uh, yeah, I think the organization does does a terrific job. So our guest today on Conversation with the Coach has been Rob Herringer, the brand new, I'm talking brand new, Director <laughs> of Coaching Education for United Soccer Coaches. Rob, thank you for taking the time for coming on the GP Soccer Podcast. It's greatly appreciated. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great talking to you, and I can't wait to do this again uh, somewhere down the line. I'm going to hold you to that, my friend. I'm going to hold right. you to that. Giovanni Pacini here, GP Soccer Podcast. This has been Conversation with the Coach with the terrific Rob Erringer. Next up, it's Coach's Corner. You know that. Don't you dare go anywhere. And welcome to the GP Soccer Podcast, Coach's Corner, where you'll find great tips and advice on how to teach the great game of soccer. Welcome to Coach's Corner on the GP Soccer Podcast. Uh, today, we've got a uh, quote uh, a piece from a press conference from Frank Martin when he served as the uh, head men's basketball coach at the University of South Carolina. And uh, let me just say that this needs no setup. It speaks for itself. I know this. I'm the most animated coach that you've probably ever seen when my team's playing. I go watch my kids play. I don't say boo. I don't wave my arms. I don't try to coach my kids. With all due respect to most parents out there, I probably know more about basketball than most of them. Okay? But I sit in the stands and I don't say a word. There's two guys refereeing a fourth grade game on a Sunday morning. What can they possibly be making? 20 bucks a game? I used to do that. I used to make $12 for 10 and under, 15 for... 15 and under and 17 or 18 bucks for high school age kids. Okay. So on a Sunday morning, instead of being in church, those guys are out there trying to make a couple bucks to pay their bills, feed their families. Do you think they really care what fourth grade team wins? Do you really think that they like sat at home and said, I can't wait to officiate that game tomorrow because that one team, I can't wait to get that 10 year old kid and embarrass them in front of people. Do you really think that's what they're doing? I don't try to tell my kid how they should play. You know what I told my two boys when they come at me? Why are you asking me, man? I didn't run your practice. Go talk to your coach. But uh, don't talk about your coach in front of me. Because if you are, then you're not playing basketball. You don't understand why you didn't play better? Go talk to your coach. I'm not your coach. I'm your dad. Somebody disrespects you, 
then I'm here. If you fail, good, deal with it. I'm going to help you get up. But don't come talk to me about coaching. I, I do this for a living, man. I'm not going to criticize a guy that's trying to help you. And then the other part. So that's the officials. You think those coaches coaching fourth grade kids are making any money? So there's someone that's giving up their personal time on a Sunday for free to help other people's children, yet we're going to have the adults in the stands yelling obscenities at the officials, criticizing every decision the coach makes, yelling at the kids like the kids, they're 10 years old, man. Like if there were LeBron James and Dwayne Wade playing in the NBA Finals, like, like they know how to handle their coach over here and their parent over here yelling at them. Then we wonder why kids get confused, man, why kids rebel, why kids don't know how to listen. How can you listen when you got so many voices in your head at the same time? You know what life teaches you? Shut things off. And that's that's the part that's frustrating to me. It's if, if someone so wants to be so animated when there's a basketball game going on, then go coach the team. Go run practices. Show up every day at six o'clock at night and run an hour and a half practice. And then you got your team to coach or be an assistant coach, sit on the bench, yell all you want. I don't care if people on the bench yell at my kids. I got two boys. I, if they don't deal with my children, they won't be on, my children won't be on their team. My, my child acts up or doesn't do things the way that they're expected to do things by them, not me. And they let it happen, I'm taking my son off the team. I want my son to be challenged, my, both of my boys. I want them to grow up. I want them to understand what life's about. But that's the part that's sad, man. Next up on the GP Soccer Podcast, soccer news and analysis with yours truly, Giovanni Piccini. This is Soccer News and Analysis with Giovanni Piccini. Christine Sinclair, the top goal scorer in international soccer, announced she will retire from the Canadian national team at the end of this season. Sinclair, 40, has scored 190 international goals, most among both men and women, since she made her national team debut in 2000. Portugal's Cristiano Ronaldo, the top scorer amongst men, has 127 goals. Former U.S. women's, women's coach Vladko Antonovsky is the new coach of the NWSL's Kansas City Current, a person with knowledge of the move as told to the Associated Press. United States men's captain Tyler Adams is expected to miss at least three months for Bournemouth after a second, second surgery for a hamstring problem that has limited the midfielder to just one appearance for the Premier League club. Major League Soccer drew 10,900,804 fans for an average of 22,111 per game both new league records. The average of 22,111 broke the record of 22,106 set in 2017. It was up 5.1% from the 2022 average of 21,033. The total of over 10 million fans marks the second year in a row MLS has drawn more than 10 million participants. Inter Miami became the ML became the first MLS team to average more than 30,000 fans a game on the road with an average of 30,834. Its six away games after Lionel Messi joined the team, the Argentine played in three of them and averaged 45,764 fans. 
Of the 28 returning teams, 21 enjoyed attendance increases, eight with increases of more than 10%. Into Miami led all teams with an increase of 40%. Everett, Massachusetts officials are poised to return to the state legislature for help in developing a prime waterfront parcel with the hopes that it could be used for a soccer stadium for the New England Revolution. This would be their second such effort. Last summer, the House of Representatives approved language in a broad-reaching economic development bill that would lift the industrial restrictions for this property. But the Senate did not agree and the attempt fizzled. Now, proponents are hoping to try again with the goal of resolving the years-long search for a new home for the Revs so the team could move to a purpose-built stadium in the urban core of Greater Boston. The property in question? A roughly 45-acre site on the Mystic River across Route 99 from Encore Casino. Wind Resorts, which operates the casino, bought the power plant site in March for $25 million from Constellation Energy. Constellation still operates the remaining portion of the Mystic Power Plant next door, but that will close in mid-2024. In local Boston area soccer action, Oliver Rames head coach John Barada and midfield coach Jason Heim both earned their 200th career wins. Barada accomplished the milestone with a 4-2 win over Mansfield, while Heim claimed number 200 with a 1-0 win over Dover Sherburn. Sadly, Sir Bobby Charlton, the English soccer icon who survived a plane crash that decimated a Manchester United team destined for greatness to become the heartbeat of his country's 1966 World Cup triumph, died surrounded by his family. He was 86 and was rarely seen in public after being diagnosed with dementia in 2020. An extravagantly gifted attacking midfielder with a ferocious shot, Charlton was the leading scorer for both United with 249 goals and England with 49 goals, far more than 40 years until being overtaken by Wayne Rooney. He was easily recognizable with his comb-over and known globally for being a gentleman of the beautiful game. I'm Giovanni Piccini. That is Soccer News and Analysis. Next up, the EPL Euro Report with the great Rob Ellis. Welcome to the GP Soccer Podcast, English and European Football Roundup with your host, Rob Ellis. Hi everyone and greetings from London. This is Rob Ellis bringing you the 7th edition of my European Soccer Roundup on the coach's dream of a podcast, that is the GP Soccer Podcast. As always, I'm here to close out the show after Giovanni's velvet tones and his star guest have richly entertained you for the last 50 minutes. Last week, I broke the ice on the current setup and player pathways in place for British youth soccer players. Today, we're moving away from the administrative and logistical side of soccer and getting back to the tactical side of the game. Today, we're going to take a look at the emergence of a tactic that has swept across the European professional leagues from the top to the bottom divisions. My focus today is on the evolution of the inverted winger to find out why so many teams now play with inverted wingers, how it works, how it helps and how it hinders teams, and what it might mean in the years ahead. 
Over the last five to ten years, the number of professional clubs opting to use inverted wingers has shot up. As with all emerging tactics, there comes a point where teams begin to try something else, and over the last 12 months, a relatively small number of teams have either ditched their inverted wing model on both, or in more cases, on one side of the pitch. In a nutshell, an inverted winger is a player that plays wide and with their preferred or stronger foot facing infield, as opposed to facing the near touch line, which is the more traditional method of playing on the wing. In days gone by, wingers and also fullbacks would rarely play with their stronger foot facing infield. Coaches and managers were more likely to play a weaker player on the correct side of the pitch, i.e. a left-footed winger playing on the left, rather than a technically stronger player playing on the incorrect side of the pitch. The thinking behind this was twofold. Firstly, it supposedly provided a better team balance. And secondly, and logically enough, it provided teams with more width and consequently greater pitch coverage. Managers were loath to play with fullbacks showing their stronger foot infield. It stands to reason that if the wingers had their stronger foot closer to the touchline, they were more likely to attack down that wide channel. And the opposing fullbacks would then need to have their stronger side or their stronger foot facing that channel to minimise the wingers' threat. I can remember a few examples of fullbacks from the 1980s and 90s that were able to play with their weaker foot facing the winger, but in most of these cases, the fullbacks were so strong on their weaker foot that they were basically considered as two footed players. The Italian maestro Paolo Maldini could comfortably play left back and right back, as could West Germany's World Cup winning defender Andreas Bremer and Manchester United's Irish stalwart Dennis Irwin. As with fullbacks, there have always been examples of inverted wingers, or at the very least wingers that could switch flanks during play. George Best and Johan Cruyff were two great examples of wingers that could invert to almost unplayable effect. The Italian wonder kid of the early 1990s, Gianluigi Lentini, could also happily switch feet and flanks, as could the mercurial talent that was Dejan Savicevic of Montenegro. Here in England, two homegrown wingers who could comfortably invert were Chris Waddle of Newcastle United and Paul Merson of Arsenal. Until the early 2000s, wingers generally had a pretty predictable brief. Number one, their first priority was to beat the opposing fullback on the outside and attack the space in behind them. Number two, wingers were expected to pepper the opposition penalty area with crosses whether they be high looping crosses for the big number nine to attack or low cutbacks for the quicker and smaller forwards to attack. Finally, when out of possession, the winger was expected to get back to the halfway line and be ready to spring forwards on quick counter-attacks. During the mid to late 1990s, most professional teams across Europe tried or at least experimented with wingbacks. By playing three central defenders, the wingbacks had more of an attacking brief that changed the role of the winger. With the wingbacks given license to drive forwards, the wingers on both sides began to tuck in to create three central-ish midfielders and allow space out wide for the wingbacks to attack. With more responsibility in central areas of the pitch, the wingers in their new roles spent more time facing infield rather than facing the touchline. And with this change, the need to play with the preferred foot facing out rather than in was reduced. In the last 20 years, right across European soccer, 
and particularly in each European country's top two divisions, fewer teams now play with two central strikers. Many teams prefer one central striker with a number 10 supporting, or a central striker supported by two wide attackers and an advanced number 8 feeding the three of them. Even the profile of the centre forward has changed. Number 9s are no longer just penalty box predators, aerial monsters or battering rams. Many number 9s like to play as a second number 10 because they are strong both creatively and technically. Gabriel Jesus at Arsenal is a good example of a modern day number 9. He's fleet of foot, inventive, good in 1v1 situations and happy to vacate the central attacking areas. There are still plenty of more traditional number 9s knocking about. Robert Lewandowski at Barcelona, Olivier Giroud of AC Milan and Ivan Toni of Brentford are all typical big, strong number 9s that thrive on crosses to convert. The recent changes in formations and the evolution of the number 9 has helped to facilitate the move towards employing inverted wingers. If strikers in the mould of Gabriel Jesus leave the central areas unoccupied, it stands to reason that there's more central space to attack for the inverted wingers. This space is created to entice the wingers to fill it, and so it makes sense if they play with their preferred foot facing in fields towards the danger zone. Secondly, centre forwards across Europe's elite leagues score fewer headed goals from crosses than 20 plus years ago, which reduces the need for the winger to attack the space in behind the fullback and then to go on and deliver stand up far post crosses for the centre forwards to attack in the air. I recently attended a coaching course based at Leicester City's training ground, where I listened to a vastly experienced and much travelled coach explain his philosophy of using the ball as bait. In broad detail, this means holding on to possession until the last moment for as long as possible to draw the defenders in towards the ball. The bait works best in long periods of possession because this means it allows possession to be held and players to be drawn towards the ball. And he, as a coach, prefers passes of 10 yards or less to make the likelihood of retaining possession higher and of giving the ball away lesser than if longer and riskier passes are used. The riskier passes might cause problems if they penetrate, but obviously they're higher risk balls, higher chance of giving the ball away. Ticker Taka is the ultimate example of using the ball as bait, and the masters of this were Guardiola's Barcelona. Possession was routinely kept for prolonged periods of play. Short passes were king and the ball was treated like a valuable diamond. The ticker-tacker uber-possession tactic is popular amongst Europe's elite teams and teams like Manchester City simply hate to play long passes through fear of losing the ball. And by extension, crosses slung into the penalty area are long passes and they often miss their desired target player. Again, this places less value on wingers that attack the touchline and deliver crosses. And in a tick-attacker system, wingers are required to drive infield to play short, sharp combinations with the other attackers. Inverted wingers are a big goal threat. The sight of Saka, Salah and Son cutting in from the flank on their stronger foot to score is a familiar EPL sight. 
However, if the opposing defenders can slam the door shut on the shot, the inverted winger can then cause problems by creating congestion in central attacking areas that well-drilled defences can funnel into dead ends. Over the past 24 months, we are seeing more and more European clubs not only using inverted wingers, but also employing inverted fullbacks. Zinchenko and Partey started the season as tucked-in fullbacks for Arsenal in an attempt to dominate the midfield. Man City have done this for a long time, and it's only a matter of time before more teams follow suit. Be aware though that inverted fullbacks in the modern game refer to fullbacks pushing into midfield, rather than as earlier discussed, playing with their stronger foot facing infield in the mould of Maldini, Bremer and Irwin. Well guys, that brings me to the end of my 10 minutes with you. I've enjoyed talking tactics and I hope I've clearly analysed the inverted wingers phenomenon for you. Sadly though, time flies and that's my time up. Until next week, best wishes from London. Getting the most out of your advertising dollar is essential to any good business. Knowing that you're getting a good return on your advertising investment certainly makes a positive impact on your bottom line. Advertising on the GP Soccer Podcast is one of those sound advertising decisions. With a global audience of thousands of listeners, high-profile interview guests, and now into its ninth season, the GP Soccer Podcast has become a noted must-listen in the very crowded soccer podcast world. Host Giovanni Piccini is a professional voiceover artist and will work with each and every client to ensure that the ad reflects the client's needs and wants. Each advertisement is professionally recorded and edited by Giovanni Puccini himself and is promoted on not only the show, but throughout all of the GP Soccer Podcast social media networks. Contact the GP Soccer Podcast at GP4Soccer, and that's the number four, at yahoo.com to learn more. The GP Soccer Podcast, where you will always get a good return on your investment dollar. And welcome back to the GP Soccer Podcast. Giovanni Piccini here. My goodness gracious me, that's our show for today. Um, if I do say so myself, that was a pretty good one. If I, if, if I uh, can be ever so modest, it was pretty good. If you like what you hear, and goodness knows I hope that you do, uh, please tell everyone. Remember, you can follow the GP Soccer Podcast all over social media, and new episodes are available every single Wednesday morning. If you've got a question that you'd like to have answered on Coach's Corner, well, email me at gp4soccer, and that's the number four, at yahoo.com. This is your host, Giovanni Piccini, and I will catch you later.